It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well, that was quite the weekend, wasn't it? I left this studio on Friday afternoon, sure, in the knowledge that Matt Hancock would have to fall on his sword before the end of this week. Despite his mealy-mouthed statement after the Sun published pictures of him canoodling with Gina Colodangelo that he was carrying on with the job of saving the world, I knew he was going to have to go. And I said he should have gone on Friday. Turns out, of course, as ever, I was completely and utterly correct. Despite Boris Johnson's ridiculous assertion that he was satisfied with the Secretary of State for Health's explanations and that he considered the matter closed, he was always on the way down the greasy pole. Finally, on Saturday, he realised that the outcry in the country and even amongst his own party members was too much to ignore. And now he has gone. But there are plenty of questions left to answer. And there are also plenty of questions about the new man running the COVID campaign, Sajid Javid. As Julie Hartley Brewer said, she's hopeful that he will be more business minded uh, than Matt Hancock was, that he will be more concerned about the economy than Matt Hancock was. And he won't actually be quite so preachy as Matt Hancock was, which is partly what led to his sudden demise. Because some people out there are saying, oh, starting to feel a bit sorry for Matt Hancock. Well, I wouldn't bother if I were you. This is the same guy who stopped people from hugging their relatives, the same man who stopped people from going to funerals uh, of their loved ones, the same man who stopped people getting married, the same man uh, who is now responsible for us probably getting banished out of most of mainland Europe because of the rise of the COVID variant numbers, because we've been so obsessed with them that everybody now, including Angela Merkel in Germany, thinks that we are somehow plague-ridden as a nation. Absolutely outrageous. To get some help on all of this, we've got former number 10 communications chief, Katie Perrier, on what to do with wayward ministers. Mail on Sunday's columnist, Peter Hitchens, is going to be on the Great British Giveaway. Plus, of course, what he makes of the shenanigans in number 10 this week. And Alberto Costa, MP, parliamentary private secretary to the Attorney General, is going to be here too with his battle to keep double killer Colin Pitchfork behind bars for life. 0344-499-1000 is the number. Coming up, we'll be talking to Paul Charles with the latest travel news and the nightmare scenario of more European lockdowns and the possibility of an EU-wide ban on Britain's holidaying without quarantine. Plus, we've got our favourite statistician, Jamie Jenkins, coming on to run the line over the latest figures. He'll be telling us why there's no earthly reason to delay the lifting of the restrictions and we don't actually have to wait until July the 19th, even though uh, we may have to. 0344-499-1000. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you, the eyes and ears of the independent republic. Many, many thousands of you took to the streets at the weekend to demand freedom. Julie Hartley Brewer said she thought it was about 100,000. We've got some footage from Tonya Buxton that we'll be playing out later on. But if you were there, uh, we need to hear from you as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. The original and the best. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And now it's time to say a very, very good morning uh, to Mr Alberto Costa, MP. He is, of course, Conservative MP for South Leicestershire, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General. Alberto, welcome. Very good morning to you. Thank you, Mike, and good morning. Thanks for inviting me on to your excellent programme. It's absolutely my pleasure. Now, we're going to get to uh, your campaign, your very, uh, so far, quite successful campaign uh, to make sure that Colin Pitchfork does not get released out into uh, the big wide world of of Great Britain and the streets of Great Britain. But just before that, Alberto, I must ask you about Matt Hancock. He obviously realised on Saturday that he should have gone on Friday, which is what I recommended that he do. There was absolutely no support for him in the Cabinet, I understand, also amongst Tory MPs, I don't know about yourself, but an awful lot of Tory MPs have been reporting that they got 
acres and acres of emails from uh, angry constituents demanding that he go? Uh, Mike, I'm a member of the House of Commons Committee on Standards, and whenever there's a conduct issue affecting any MP from across the party, I don't usually comment simply because I'd have to recuse myself if I pass judgment on that. But as ever, I watch and li I listen to your programme, and um, your opinions tend to be right. Well, that's very kind of you to say, Alberto. I'm not going to let you off that easily, though, because you, you must have thought to yourself when you saw those pictures on Friday morning, for God's sake, Matt, what on earth were you thinking? You know, because here's a guy who has been largely responsible for an awful lot of people, and I'm not going to ask you about whether he did anything wrong. But what I will ask you, which I think you can answer, is why do you think people are so angry about what he's done? And do you think that, it, that what he's done may have undermined the confidence of the public in following the, the rules that have been set out? Well, what I can say, Mike, I don't think without prejudicing my role on the Committee on Standards is that I, like many other MPs, received over the last few days a very large number of emails from constituents expressing a view, and the view tended to be the one that you yourself had expressed. So I certainly was I'm cognizant of the strength of feeling that uh, this situation has generated among my constituents, and I'm aware from colleagues that they've equally received a large number of emails. But beyond that, I won't comment on the specifics because I am a member of the Committee on Standards. That's fine. Um, what about the numbers on Saturday marching? Because I can tell you that from my own personal knowledge, I know a lot of people went on that march after the publication of those pictures because they wanted to demonstrate to Boris Johnson and others in the government that they're sick to death of all these restrictions, that there seems to be no valid reason for an awful lot of them having been put in in the first place. Um, and now, because of what's happened, they're less likely to follow any restrictions in the future. So it is important that those of us who make the law, those of us that make the rules, abide by them. But I would also say this, Mike, and I think you will you will understand this. Um, MPs like myself, none of us, we're all human, none of us are perfect. I think if we had a House of Commons that was full of perfect people, I think the laws that would be passed would be frankly unbearable. So actually the House of Commons reflects society. We've got people from all walks of background. And so insofar as the, the demonstrations concerned, you know, I'm a great believer in freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and it's of paramount importance that people are able to express their views, their opinions, uh, through programmes such as this, and through uh, protests in a free and liberal society, which is what we are. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And we will continue to have these protests. We will continue to have people demonstrating for as long as uh, the government attempts to tell us what to do and pushes us around. And I think, um, again, the the acts, if the acts of those people who are asking people to put up the, themselves for sacrifice, the acts of people uh, who are telling people how to behave, when to go out, when to go home, how many people you can have in your house. You know, do you think at any point the government will look back on some of these restrictions and say... You know, we didn't really need to do that. Well, the government's confirmed it's going to have an inquiry uh, next year. So I think anybody would be surprised if we didn't take any lessons from that. So absolutely, it's going to be an inquiry. And it's right that that inquiry is independently held. And that all of us uh, hear from various parts of society as to the extent to which some of these restrictions helped, the extent to which some of these restrictions were perhaps not as helpful as they ought to have been. But that's to come in the inquiry, and no doubt you and I and others will be having quite a lengthy debate about it. Well, we, I think well, we, will as long as, as long, we will as long as you're able to give an opinion on it. <laughs> I, I, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, my, my, my opinion is really clear in this. I think that um, when it comes to restrictions, I'm a lawyer by, by profession. You abide by the law. And those of us that make the law, those of us that pass the rules must be held to a higher standard. That's the bottom line. Yes, I think that's right. So what, therefore, did you make, Alberto, of the police saying that they would not be pursuing uh, any of the reported um, crimes that Matt Hancock may have committed on the grounds that they were, in their words, retrospective? I mean, there was sniggering at the back uh, all afternoon when that came out, because, after all, most crimes, if you look at them as a police officer investigating them, are retrospective, aren't they? So I understand, I mean, you, look, I understand you're trying to draw me back into the Matt Hancock situation, but because I'm a member of the committee... Well, it's a bit difficult, Alberto, because we can't avoid it, right? You are in government, you are the Secretary of State, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General, so I would expect you to have a view on the police's action or inaction in any particular case. 
So in any particular case, I can't comment about specifics of Matt Hancock, but generally speaking, if someone is alleged to have breached the law when it comes to COVID regulations, it is the operational duty of the police to investigate. It's not for me as a politician to tell the police what to do. That's not my role in a, in a free democracy. My job is to make the law. It's the police's job to investigate the law. And I think you're quite right, Mike. If somebody has, has been, been alleged to breach law in whatever field, whoever it might be, it is important that the police get on and do their job. It is important. And are the uh, MI5, I'm told, are now involved as well because they're looking into how this uh, security breach actually happened. Um, it would appear as well that the cabinet, uh, one cabinet minister has told Sky News uh, that they're going to have their uh, offices swept for listening devices and or cameras. I would have thought that every government building has CCTV in it, doesn't it? So I think that's a completely separate matter, Mike, and it's a, it's a fascinating topic on its own. The it idea that, the, the idea that there's cameras and microphones surreptitiously, potentially surreptitiously in somebody in a ministerial uh, office or a ministerial building, without the minister and senior civil servants being aware of that and without it having been lawfully placed, is of itself extraordinarily concerning. And I think it's absolutely imperative that the security services do come on board and, and assist us. If, on the other hand, a camera is there legitimately and it's in a public space within a public building and um, somebody has breached the law and the camera is used as evidence for that, well, that's a different matter. So I, I think that it's important that ministers are able to get on and do their job in a legitimate manner uh, without there being any hidden cameras that they're unaware of or senior civil servants that are unaware of. Because not least that, that it could be potentially a very serious security breach for the country, never mind the minister in the, the, the particular department, but it could be a very serious breach in, in terms of Britain's interests. Well, hang on. I, think it's, I mean, we are, we are the most CCTV'd country per head of population in the entire world. There's more CCTV cameras in the UK than there are in China per head of population. Surely it'd be a bit idiotic for you not to expect that there would be CCTV in your own office because in our office here at News UK, uh, I'm pretty sure there are cameras pretty much filming all the time. So that's why I made the distinction between whether there's a legitimate camera inside a ministerial office or whether it's surreptitious, whether it's hidden. And that's the difference. Of course, there, there are cameras in public buildings for, for security reasons itself. There must be cameras in various buildings. And the way I deal with things, whenever I'm in a public space, Mike, particularly as a parliamentarian doing my job, whether it's in the House of Commons, whether it's on the parliamentary state, any action that I do, I always do on the basis that I am exposed to the public. However, if I'm in my parliamentary office and I'm discussing parliamentary business, whether it's standards or, or another sensitive issue, such as pitchfork, which we're about to talk yes. about, um, I, I would be uh, horrified to learn if there was a secret camera secretly recording me. That would in itself be a breach of the law. That would be repugnant and it would be a breach of our interest. We can't have parliamentarians and ministers uh, doing their job if they're being spied on. Are you saying that you think that there's a possibility that this particular footage was filmed by an independent camera, which was not, in fact, part of the CCTV network at the Department of Health? Well, I don't know. I'm like yourself, I'm hearing from the media various uh, stories on this particular issue. Uh, some are saying that it was a, a normal CCTV camera and the footage was leaked to the media. Others have said, I've heard it say that, um, that the camera it wasn't there legitimately. So I simply don't know. I'm just hearing this from the media. But what I do know is that ministers have said that there will be um, a security uh, inquiry into it. And they will look very carefully at why uh, uh, who, or rather, which camera took the image in question, uh, and was it a legitimate camera or was it uh, a secret camera that the minister and senior civil servants were unaware of? And that of itself, I say, would open up a can of worms if it was the latter. So it remains to be seen. I mean, obviously, the security services need to do their job, and no doubt we'll hear back in due course once they've done their job. Now, there will be a lot of people, and I'll, I'll move off this shortly because I know you want to talk about uh, Mr. Pitchfork, but. A lot of people are asking for Matt Hancock to be recalled as an MP, not just because of the fact that he said, act as if you've got COVID, not just because he told people at the very time that he was hugging his mistress that you shouldn't be hugging your relatives. 
do you think he should resign as an MP? Because an awful lot of people will say to me, he's lost his job. Well, he hasn't lost his job. He's lost his department. He still has a job as an MP, which is very well remunerated, and he gets some very good expenses on the basis of that as well. Probably helps him pay for his London house, which is no longer his residence. Um, what do you think he should do? Well, look, I understand you're, you're trying to get me back onto that territory, but the Committee on Standards does have very severe sanctions when looking at conduct of MPs, including suspending MPs. In the House of Commons itself, um, if an MP has been suspended over a number of days, that in itself can trigger a recall. So I'm not going to get involved in the specifics of this or any other case involving any MP in case it comes before the Committee on Standards, because I have to be absolutely impartial when adjudicating on any MP, whichever party they come from. Well, when you're asked to adjudicate on Matt Hancock, which way do you think you'll go? <laughs> now, um, as I say, if, if any of the conduct that he or any other MP uh, does or doesn't do comes before the Committee on Standards, it's really important that as a member of that Committee on Standards, I look on it uh, with total impartiality, without any emotion, Justice is blindfolded, as you know, Lady Justice is blindfolded, without any motion to ensure that natural justice uh, is done, Mike. And I'm sure you would want that yourself. If you were up on a disciplinary charge, you would want to ensure that whoever's adjudicating on your behalf has not expressed any prior opinion. Well, I think if I'd been caught out like Matt Hancock, uh, not only would I resign from the government, but I'd resign from uh, my job as a parliamentary MP. But, you know, that's just me. Well, it's important that you get to express your view on this excellent programme which I'm glad that you're doing. Excellent. Alberta, stay with us. We're going to take a little short break and we'll come back and talk about Colin Pitchfork, which is a very, very worthy campaign that you've been running and hopefully you will win. Alberto Costa is with us. Uh, he's Conservative MP for South Leicestershire, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General. This is Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Now, Alberto Costa has been uh, kind enough to come on and I've been grilling him about Matt Hancock. So now I'll get him on to talk about what he was originally going to talk about, which was, in fact, the case uh, of the double child rapist and killer, Colin Pitchfork. Alberto, you and I spoke about this some weeks ago. Uh, you assured me that you were going to try and lead the fight to ensure that this parole board decision uh, was not upheld. Tell us what's happened. Well, let's let's just remind listeners, uh, Mike, that we're talking about a man who brutally raped two innocent teenage girls, and then horrifically murdered them. And this individual, this individual's notoriety was known because he, it was the first case under English criminal law where DNA profiling was used to help catch and convict this vile psychopath. Um, look, the man has served a number of years in prison, but I think it's right for listeners to ask is it ever appropriate to release somebody who's committed these sorts of awful crimes? You know, this isn't a case that somebody killed somebody when a burglary gone wrong or, or some other such killing bad that that would be. This is about premeditated sexual offences involving the killing of innocent young women. Children, in fact, they were children at the time. And I think it's right to ask the question, um, is, it, is it morally right to release somebody who's only 61, who's still relatively young, middle-aged, fit man, he's got decades of life ahead of him, when the families and friends of the victims have got a life safe sentence that they have to suffer. I don't think it's right to release this guy at this time. You know, if he was suffering from terminal cancer, <clears throat> if he was in his 80s, I think we're a compassionate society. He might close an Olsonian blind eye and say, well, he's going to higher authority. But that's not the case, he's only 61. Mm. I think it's wrong to release somebody that's committed those sorts of terrible crimes. Yes. But of course, what we also know, Alberta, and we discovered as a result of, of some of your work, is that he's been out on day release already quite a bit. One of the reasons they say they know he's going to be fine if they release him into the community is that he hasn't, you know, sort of murdered anybody while he's been out on day release. Well, thank goodness for that. But, you know, the process by which you can then keep him inside, would that also change the fact that he wouldn't be allowed out for day visits as well? So... Let's not forget he's still in prison. Whether it's an open prison or whether it's a, a maximum security prison, it's still a prison. And his liberty is still very heavily curtailed. Uh, look, I'm told by the parole board that he's been rehabilitated. But my point isn't whether he's been rehabilitated or not. My point is that today, if Pitchfork had committed just one of his crimes against a young woman, if he'd raped and murdered somebody today, 
he's likely to he would likely to be given what's called a whole life tariff, which means he would spend the whole of his natural life in prison, whether he gets rehabilitated or not. And I think my point isn't just about whether he presents a danger to society, which, I, by the way, I still think he does. But it's not just that. It's also about, is it morally right to release somebody that's only 61 that's committed these sorts of crimes? And I don't think it is. I think these sorts of crimes are so heinous. They're so beyond the pale that we must have a deterrent that says, if you commit this, this sort of crime in society, you rape and brutally murder young girls. You're going to prison for life. That's, I think, what the message ought to be. And I think that is the message today with the changes that we've made in law and how we deal with sexual offences against women. So what happens next? The Justice Secretary has said that he's going to revisit this particular decision. Uh, what's going to happen? So he's got by close of play today, 21 days since the parole board issued its appalling decision to release Mitchell. He's got, he's got to apply today to the parole board. That's the Secretary of State for Justice. So he will be sending an application to the parole board. And the law says this, the law that we introduced in July 2019, the reconsideration mechanism, politicians can request in the form of a minister that the parole board think again its decision. Now, it's up to the parole board. But this mechanism is really important, uh, Mike, because when we had the John Warboys outrage three years ago, government was utterly weak. It was mm. unable to send the decision back to the parole board. So we've got this tool. The minister has rightly, after intense lobbying and campaigning, he's rightly sending it back to the parole board on the grounds that it is an arguably irrational decision that the parole board has made. So it's gone back to the parole board. It's now for the parole board to reconsider and make their decision. So my focus is now going to turn to the parole board, to Martin Jones, the chief executive of the parole board, who only last week was given an honour. Mustn't forget that. He was given an honour in the Queen's Birthday Awards. Um, so I'm going to be pushing for him and his colleagues in the parole board to consider it very carefully in light of the public outrage of releasing this double child rapist and murderer. And when will that decision then be made? When will we know what they've decided? So there's no set timescale as such. The parole board uh, has to choose firstly whether it wants to reconsider it. And if it jumps that hurdle, then it will look for new evidence. I will be asking for a new parole board members to be constituted, not the same ones. Going back to the whole idea of the principles of natural justice and making sure it's fresh minds that look at this. Uh, and that may take time. So, and, and quite frankly, the longer it takes, the better, because um, the pitchfork remains in prison. So I'm in no rush for them to, to make their decision, Mike, and I'm sure you're not in any rush either uh, to have that decision. But this is the next step. The next step is really for the parole board to make up its mind on whether it chooses to reconsider this and if it does, what further evidence, what new parole board will be constituted. But I would say this, Mike, whatever the outcome of the Pitchfork case, whatever happens in the weeks and months ahead, the government has committed to having a full root and branch review of the parole board. And I can tell your listeners this, that the Pitchfork case is instructive for me on how I make submissions to government on this root and branch review of the parole board. Because frankly, I think that Pitchfork case highlights inherent problems with the parole board perhaps not taking into consideration the changes in society of how we view sexual offences, murders against women. Absolutely right. Alberto, thank you very much indeed for your time. Alberto Costa, Conservative MP for South Leicestershire, Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Attorney General uh, and also campaigner uh, to keep this ghastly uh, individual, uh, Mr Colin Pitchfork, inside and, and not on the streets of this country for a very, very long time, preferably for his entire life. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We want to hear from all of you out there today, of course, because it was quite the weekend. Matt Hancock was uh, exposed as hypocrite on Friday. He had to wait until Saturday to resign. Love to hear from you on the front of that because an awful lot of you uh, who are constituents of Matt Hancock's up in Suffolk uh, are not too happy about the fact that he's still uh, your MP. Because let's face it, some people are going, oh, we should feel a bit sorry for Matt Hancock. He's got himself into this terrible situation. Well, he's left his wife. He's left his children. He seems to have set up house 
house with this new woman uh, who he says that he's in love with. Apparently, um, he may or may not be investigated because of a breach of uh, email guidelines uh, because he was using his own personal email. He's been accused of all sorts of things regarding cronyism and handing out of contracts from the NHS. And yet he's still in receipt of a very handy 80 plus uh, thousand pounds a year as an MP. Plus, he gets a house. Plus, he gets all sorts of expenses. Plus, uh, he gets his travel allowances paid. You know, this is not a guy who's suffering in any way, shape or form. I'm not saying we should necessarily go after him, but I want to know what you think. Because if he was your MP, I don't think you'd be entirely sure that you'd want to keep him on. And maybe uh, if we're supposed to have this sleaze-free government in this country, how about we actually look at what he's done and say, perhaps there should be a by-election? Why not? Let's talk to Paul Charles, Chief Executive of the PC Agency, a travel consultancy firm, because on the bad news front, uh, it looks as though Portugal has gone back into lockdown. It looks as though in other countries around the world, uh, they're going backwards. It looks as though because of our rather, shall we say, enthusiastic announcements uh, of the COVID variants in this country, most of Europe now thinks we're the sick man of Europe. Um, and it's not very good news for anybody. Paul, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, it does appear as though uh, we've sort of snookered ourselves with these figures that keep being put out. I mean, no matter who you speak to, um, most people in this country will tell you that, yes, there are uh, an increasing number of positive tests going on, but there is not an increasing number of people being hospitalised and there's not an increasing number of people dying. And yet Angela Merkel today may well issue a dictum uh, or even a diktat that we can't go anywhere. Yes, we're doing 10 times as much testing in this country as Germany is. So uh, perhaps understandably, you're seeing more infection cases emerge as a result, simply because there's so much more testing going on. But what's happening is in Europe, they're looking at the UK and they're seeing the amount of infections rise to 16 to 18 to 20,000 or so per day. And they're getting worried. And so they're starting to put in place barriers to British visitors going back into Europe. Mm. Um, Spain this morning, for example, announced that for the Balearics, so the Bitha, Menorca and Mallorca, from this Wednesday, you will need to either show a negative PCR test if you're a British visitor, or that you've had the full dose, the full jabs. So uh, we're starting to see Europe put down some pretty tough controls now. And what does that mean to the testing regime? Because I was talking to people over the weekend, and I think everybody's thoroughly confused about what it is that you're meant to do. If you do want to go, for example, to Mallorca, uh, and you have been double jabbed, do you also have to have a test? Uh, well, the rules are changing by the day, and this is one of the confusions, of course. So changing by the hour, in fact, right. which in the last two hours we've seen Spain announce this. We saw Portugal last night uh, talk about how you need to be double jabbed before you go in. Uh, although if you're under 12, you are allowed in without a PCR test, and of course you won't be jabbed. We're waiting for clarification on what happens if you're aged between 12 and 17, right. because that hasn't been made clear yet. But yes, it's changing literally by the hour, Mike, and uh, even experts like myself are struggling to keep up mm. with the constant changes. Um, what's clear is that this summer will be a bit of a roller coaster. So wherever you're going, you need to absolutely check on the restrictions that may be in place, not just in terms of our own traffic light system, which is pretty well shot to pieces here, but also in terms of the restrictions going into a country, of course. Yes, because I was hearing from some people in uh, Portugal this morning that, you know, they had decided to go nonetheless uh, to their place of, uh, of of holiday choice because they thought, well, we'll just put up with the quarantine on the way back because we can. Mm. But then they got to the resort to discover that half of it was shut anyway. Yeah, it's really sad. Certainly parts of the Algarve have been have been hit badly, but Portugal is still very popular and there are still a lot of Brits who are going in there. And as you say, they're taking the view that they can self-isolate when they come back to the UK because they can work from home, perhaps. Yeah. But not everybody's in that position. And that's right. why the numbers are way down travelling at the moment than they would normally be at the end of June and beginning of July period. Pretty well capacity uh, from airlines is down to about 20 to 30 percent mm. of what they would normally fly. So it, there's, even though the list has expanded in recent days, that green and green watch list, we're still way down in terms of the numbers travelling in the sector. And the watch list really means that there's not a lot of point in going there if you're worried about quarantining on the way back because it could change while you're there. Yes, it could. And of course, a lot of consumers are worried the government will do that, as they did with Portugal uh, three weeks ago when they moved it from green to amber at such short notice. Mm. But there is hope on the horizon. Flying in is uh, Sajid Javid. And uh, there is a feeling that he's a libertarian 
that he will be less harsh than Matt Hancock was. Matt Hancock was certainly a blocker in Cabinet. There's no doubt about that. Mm. He was part of the Hancock Patel group um, who lined up against Grant Shapps and Gavin Williamson in terms of blocking opening up overseas travel. Mm. Now, Sanjay Javid, of course, has experience in helping business from when he was chancellor. He's uh, much more gung-ho towards business recovery. And I would hope, as a result of that, he's going to signal a bit of a change from where Matt Hancock was. Well, because all we want, Paul, um, uh, both in in the industry that you're in and also in the holiday business that people want to go on holidays from, you know, we want just someone to take into account the fact that, yes, there will be variants. Yes, there will be, um, you know, in cases and, and infection rates that go up and down. But they've got to change the record, surely. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? They have to change the record. But I don't see much encouragement coming from Europe, really, because Europe seems to be stuck in the same kind of place. Well, there were two things. First of all, Angela Merkel is trying to get European member states in some sort of united approach towards blocking British visitors. Mm. But I can't see that happening because so many member states, especially southern Mediterranean countries, Greece in particular, rely on the UK in the summer. They need those British visitors for the huge amounts of money they spend in the the islands or on the mainland uh, to help their economies. So I think we are going to see that. I think we're going to see countries do their own thing and not go in and be united with Merkel. And in fact, what Spain is showing this morning with the Balearics is essentially you have to show a PCR test that's negative or you show a full jab dose on your your certificate, manual certificate or your NHS app. And that shows that Spain is doing its own thing. And I think most countries in Europe will do that. The other thing we need to see, of course, is the UK government opening up overseas travel more, adding more green, pure green list countries, not just green watch list. And their own data shows that there are not many, if at all, variants coming into the UK from amber countries at the moment. No, but we keep hearing, don't we, from people saying, oh, but, you know, we've got to be very careful because we might get more variants coming in. Surely at some point we've just got to realise that that's what's going to happen, but it doesn't necessarily mean we should all go and hide under the covers. Absolutely right. And I think Sajid Javid will take this approach. I think it will be very different in tone from Matt Hancock, who, of course, was the architect of these harsh rules which he fell on his own sword with, mm. um, around social distancing, but also overseas travel. And I think Sajid Javid will have an ear to the sector. He will see that uh, many firms are hurting and that maybe there's a possibility of bringing forward this plan that the government has to allow anyone who's fully vaccinated going to an amber country to avoid quarantine when they come back to the UK. I don't think he'll wait till August to bring this in. I think he will want to bring this forward as a sign that he is more conciliatory towards the sector. Yes, and also people's patience has run out effectively because as we reach almost July, which is only a few days away now, we've still got the inability to book anything because you don't know where you can possibly go, whether you can come back from there without going into quarantine. I don't know if you've read the story in the mail today by Joan Collins talking about how she was hounded by these kind of mad covid quarantine police literally phoning her up turning up at her door to make sure that she wasn't going out all the while uh, well matt hancock was doing whatever he was doing uh, both at the g7 and in his own office and people are just yeah. fed up to the back teeth of it and they want to see change and they want to see the ability to do something it's getting on top of a lot of people now i don't think it's just uk consumers who are starting to get fed up with this because they're seeing low levels of hospitalizations luckily and far few serious illnesses mm. so that's a good thing the vaccine is working we know that yeah Um, But I think it's also those who are on furlough. 70% of the UK travel sector is still on furlough. Mm. That's a huge number of people who are, um, whilst may still be being paid some of their salary, 70 or 80% of their salaries by, by government in effect, which is very welcome, they need to move on. They need to move their lives on. They need to understand whether they're going to have a role in the sector in future or whether they're going to have to move to another career. And both hospitality and travel are finding it hard to keep people or hire people because of the uncertainty that's going on. We need more clarity from government on this. We need not only the UK to unlock on July the 19th, or certainly England anyway, on July the 19th. We also need overseas travel to be unlocked far further than it is at the moment on July the 19th. And I hope Sajid Javid will look at these numbers and realise that there is no major threat from well, people coming back from amber countries. Let's hope you're right. Paul uh, Charles, thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive of the PC Agency Travel Consultancy Firm. We all just need to be given some news which is uh, palatable. 
I'm not suggesting for a second um, that people have the right to go on holiday. But people do need to go on holiday. An awful lot of people have had a terrible time of it this year. An awful lot of people have had their house completely full, overrun, because everybody's been told to stay home. There are 200,000 schoolchildren currently at home for no apparent reason because they've been sent home. There are people who worked in the NHS who have been sent home. There are people who need holidays. There are people who need to go and visit relatives. There are people who need to travel. And at the moment, it is a complete and utter shambles. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, I have to say, I scarcely know where to begin with Peter Hitchens this week. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. Um, well, <laughs> how absolutely and utterly idiotic um, and useless can a government be? Oh, much, much worse than this one. You wait and see. Uh, that, but <laughs> this, is, this is not really about government. This is about uh, the huge gap between the propaganda which the government has spread and what it really believes. Mm. You saw in the case of Professor Ferguson, you saw in the, in the case of Dominic Cummings' wild ride to Barnard Castle, and you see in this the simple fact these people never believed their own propaganda. At the time they did these things, they were supposed to be not doing them because uh, we were faced with a terrifying disease which spread with incredible rapidity, and therefore you simply couldn't do certain things. It was that serious. And yet all these people did things which didn't fit in with the, with the rules which they had imposed. Uh, Mr. Hancock personally imposed by decrees signed in his own name on the population. And this is the first thing to remember. The second is the bizarre state of British politics and public opinion. Here is a man who over 15 months has crashed the economy, strangled huge numbers of businesses, ended thousands of jobs which, uh, whose holders probably don't yet know they've gone. Uh, reduced us to the most incredible levels of debt, condemned us to years of high inflation and punitive taxation, wrecked the education of hundreds of thousands of school children and students, uh, destroyed the lives of many old people who were deprived entirely of social contact. All these things, and he re remains in office and is largely treated as if he was a competent person. But he canoodles uh, with the colleague. Uh, in the anteroom to his ministerial office, and gosh, 
this is all terrible. He has to go. On the other hand, although it's terrible, it's not terrible because he has uh, betrayed his wife and three children or she has betrayed her husband and three children. These are things which we no longer care about because we're way beyond that kind of thing. We're much too grown up to do so. Exactly. It's because she's broken <laughs> social distancing rules. That is the state of this country. It, it, people, people, it's the fascinating thing is, is as always, not uh, what's against the rules, but what's allowed under the rules. He could have done all those things, provided he hadn't done a canoodle uh, in sight of a CCTV camera installed in his own office, apparently without his knowledge. Uh, it, it, he would still be there. Um, well, it's interesting you say that. I, you say, I, like you, I think the public are no longer bothered by uh, adultery or adulterous Some politicians. Some of the public are. Uh, no one cares about that. I think I it think was... Some of the public are. No, I think it genuinely wasn't about that. I mean, it was a particularly cringy uh, clinch that he involved himself in, which was, which was certainly, you know, if he was on Strictly Come Dancing, you would have thrown him off immediately. But the thing is that I think it was the hypocrisy that he showed because he had been such a hardliner and he had caused so many people distress and he had made people pay fines for things that were less bad than what he was doing. And so I think that was what got him in the end. Well, maybe so, but I still say that it was his pursuit of a, of a, of a largely crazy and damaging policy, which is the reason why he ought to be in that office and the reason why the, the, the people of this country should have been in a state of huge discontent for many, many months. But that's, that's what it takes. You also have a problem in what would once have been a sexual scandal with a prime minister who can't conceivably sack any minister for doing that. So it, 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 he's, he's, it was really left up to him whether he went or not, mm. because, because Mr. Johnson couldn't possibly have said to him, look, uh, Matt Hancock, you've been behaving fast and loose with your missus. You've got to go. Well, that would be inconceivable. But what I find also quite amusing, Peter, as I'm sure you do, uh, is those who support Boris Johnson and this prime minister uh, and his government who say, well, one of the great things about Boris is that he's very loyal. I mean, nearly fell off the chair. <laughs> really? Loyal to whom? Well, I, he's very loyal to the people who put him into office. <laughs> uh, and the continued tenure of the education secretary, for instance, his yes. name I can never remember. Uh, but his, his continued Gav. tenure of his... Yeah, is, is, a, is tribute to the fact that he played such an important part in the extraordinary operation to, to, to make Mr Johnson uh, the leader of the Conservative Party and so Prime Minister. And the people who helped him with that uh, are, are still very much people who he will be loyal to because that's, that, that is the basis of Johnsonian politics. Uh, you, you, as long as you stick close to the dear leader, then you're OK. Well, that's true. Uh, but sadly, um, again, and, and you've said this many times before, the, 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 sort of the chipping away of the credibility of this government continues apace. Um, at what point, if there ever will come this point, does the edifice start to crumble? Well, the problem, of course, for, for, for this government is the incredibility of the opposition, yeah. which has really ceased to function as one and given up the whole idea of being an opposition and spent, again, a lot of the past 15 months going along with the government and demanding the government did things even more stupidly. It's like the old joke about coffee, isn't it? Do stupid things more quickly uh, and, and more often if yeah. you drink a lot of coffee. Well, the, the only opposition we got from Keir Starmer was do stupid things to the country more often and more quickly. Right. Well, that's not opposition. Uh, so, and in any case, the, the whole point of New Labour has been taken over by the Conservative Party, which is now the New Labour Party. So what is it they do? Though, I'd, I have to say that I do think that the, the Cheshire and Amersham by-election might have been a grave warning. Uh, if, the, if other parties, apart from Labour, could put together a new left-wing coalition on whatever basis... Uh, this government is extremely vulnerable to that. Mm. And the, it is particularly vulnerable because its policy on development is extraordinarily damaging to very large numbers of its own voters in the suburbs and the countryside. Yes. And th they felt they had nowhere to turn until Chester and Amersham. And suddenly they realised that they could, in fact, unseat Tory MPs if they felt like it. Yes. Well, funny I think enough, funny enough a, since one of those clouds of small as as a man's hand, which will grow and grow. Yeah. I think we need to worry about that. Yeah. Well, since you said that last week, actually, I've spoken to a few Tory MPs, and some of them privately, some of them publicly have said that they believe that a lot, an awful lot of the Tory voters in that part of the world just decided not to vote because they couldn't bring themselves to do it. Well, there's your problem, isn't it? But yeah. it, it, then again, if, if, if Labour begins to crumble, and, and, and my great fear is that the Green Party uh, will replace it, uh, without all the drawbacks of, of, of Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, mm. 
uh, without all the, the pretense of being a working class party, which Labour hasn't been for years, but has relied on pretending to be. Uh, and if a new left wing coalition, similar to the one that's forming in Germany, based upon upon green dogma begins to form, then I think the idea that the Tories have got the country in their grip for decades to come uh, will turn out not to be true. But these are, this, to me, this is all surface because nothing will actually be done about any of the really big problems which face the country because nobody will address that. No. Well, you wrote about that this weekend. I wanted to touch upon upon that because uh, I, like, like you, remember the heady days of uh, BT, uh, pre-BT, when you had to get your phone from the uh, post office and you had to wait sometimes for months and months on end. But, but you're pointing out that some of the so-called um, sort of privatisations and some of the advances, if you like, in, in, in some of Britain's kind of commercial enterprises have not been entirely successful. Well, the BT business was because people would say, well, well say what you like about Margaret Thatcher, but the telephones are better. Yeah. And BT is better than the old uh, post office telephones, which we used to have. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that I hear people cursing BT all the time, far more than I ever heard them cursing the the old post office telephones. It's the the idea that privatisation was itself a miraculous thing. Anybody who travels by train knows that's not true. Mm. Uh, what happened with privatisation was the creation of a whole lot of monopolies who were even more irresponsible, untouchable, and and unresponsive to their customers than the old nationalised industries. And in many cases, are owned abroad. I mm. the water companies. They ended up being owned by an Australian bank. Yes. Uh, in many cases. So, so I don't see how that benefited us. And, and most of the other supposed achievements of Thatcherism seem to me to have come pretty much to nothing. Uh, I just think she's immensely overrated and, and, and wasn't really in any serious way conservative, particularly over what to me has always been the, the most important issue of, of pretty much of our time, the education of the children of this country, where... She, she gave in to the campaign to, to destroy grammar schools. Uh, whatever you think of comprehensive schools, there isn't any question that selective state grammar schools were better uh, and they were more accessible to the poor. Uh, and, 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 she, and she took part in the destruction of these irreplaceable institutions. It's the most crazy bit of destruction by any government since the dissolution of the monasteries. Mm. And to claim to be a conservative when when you allowed that to happen just seems to me to be impossible. Yes. I think Although there I... were both things about it that were admirable personally. You can't, you know, her own life is an extraordinary story, but I do not think that politically she was a success. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously it was a different time. And I think had she not done those things, then we would not be um, perhaps any better off if they were still here, for example, if we had not made BT into the big sort of commercial operation that it is, it may not be run very well. I and mean, that may be partly the government of the day's fault that it's not run very well. It may well be that we shouldn't have sold off large portions of the train companies and the power companies abroad. But that's happened. I'm not sure that we would have been better off just keeping one huge nationalised industry either, though, because if you look at the NHS, for example, one of the problems with the NHS is that it hasn't ever modernised. It's always been run by the same management structure and the same people and the same types of systems that it always was run by, which makes it incredibly inefficient. Well, I'm not sure about that either. I think the sort of marketisation of these things under, under Mrs Thatcher, I think, made them less efficient than they were. Actually, in terms of the results and expenditure, the British NHS, while far from perfect, outperforms American private health by a long way. Uh, it's not, it may not be the best model, but I think one of the things which made it immensely worse was this ceaseless restructuring uh, and, say, marketization of it, which which began under the Thatcher government. I, I don't actually think that the nationalization of some things is particularly bad. And for goodness sake, the post office was nationalized, I think, by Henry VIII. Uh, it's not an ideological thing. The Royal Navy was nationalized uh, about the same time, and it, it, it couldn't function any other way. Some things are better run by the state. But I think the thing which really has to be counted against the Thatcher government is that its economic policies did destroy an enormous amount of manufacturing industry. And the fashionable economic nostrum at the time was, oh, that doesn't matter. You don't need manufacturing. You, you, can, you can run an economy on services. Well, now the mood has changed and people now say, well, actually, you have to have manufacturing. But we haven't got it. And in destroying manufacturing, you destroy people's ways of life. Yes. And no, I think that's true. Part of the country, people simply had their way of life destroyed and, and replaced by more or less nothing. And I think that was a disaster. And I don't think anybody really ought to defend it. And the other thing, remember the miners' strike, whatever, again, what do you think about Arthur Scargill? Uh, the the behaviour of the Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire miners who, who 
would not go out on strike at his, at his, on his orders was extremely brave mm. and often physically brave because people came down and tried to picket them. Yeah. Their reward from the Conservative Party, lifetime unemployment. Yes. And but there again, I mean, you wouldn't really want people... To pay a debt. But, but there again, Peter, you wouldn't really want people going down mines in this day and age, would you? Oh, yes, I would. I, don't, I think that, uh, I think that the, the, the people, certainly they do in China all the time. Uh, you make it as safe as you possibly can. Uh, but it's not... It, I would rather have this country producing a large part of its own energy than being dependent on others for it. And I, also, I think that the large parts of this country in, in, in the north and, uh, and in South Wales depended heavily for their community life on the existence of that industry. If you're going to destroy it, then you have to have some idea as to what you replace it with. Mm. Nobody thought about that. No. And the social consequences of the destruction of the, of the, of the mining communities have been catastrophic. Uh, you, you have to think about more than just money when you're running a country. And I have a, a, the feeling I got in the Thatcher era, increasingly, which is what eventually cheesed me off against it, was that actually money was the only thing they were thinking. About. But the trouble is, of course, that we've had short-termist governments now for such a long time that I've forgotten what it's like to have one that was planning for the future. And in fact, the last one probably that was planning for the future is the future that you despise, which is the Blair government, who were very sure that they were putting in sort of various planks uh, that would affect... The, the British people and the British culture and the British country for, for decades to come. But hold that thought, because I've come back. I've got a great story to tell you in a moment. Peter Hitchens is with us, Mail on Sunday columnist, of course. Uh, he's got plenty to say. Uh, we've got more time to do it in. Uh, this is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're talking to Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. Yeah, I, I thought of you. I was talking to somebody at the weekend, Peter, who told me something very interesting about land uh, in this country. And do you know that there's an epidemic right now going on of farmers who are apparently selling their fields for the use of solar panelling so that uh, they get two benefits out of it. They can put money into it, uh, but they then supposedly loan the money to the people who put the solar panels in, thereby collecting interest on the revenue that they put in. So if they've got cash, farmers will do it. They can also still graze sheep apparently under that. But here's the trick. Apparently after 10 years, uh, the greenfield site that was the place where the solar panels were put is designated to be a brownfield site, and they can then sell it for development. That would explain how very much of this you now see as you travel around the country. There's been an awful lot more of it in the past few years. Uh, it, 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 certainly the last bit explains it absolutely. Mm. Once agricultural land becomes saleable for, for development, it enormously increases the price. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm much intrigued to know it, but not wholly surprised. No. When you, when you these things happening, you think there must be some reason why this is going on. Yes. Some, uh, some subsidy of some kind, because it's not actually rational to put solar panels no, up in the country. No, it makes no sense. And apparently, if you keep them there for t 10 years is the period for which you have to keep them there, and then it becomes a, a brownfield site which you can develop. Yeah, well, that's it. That's, that, that, is, that is the most astonishing thing. If you... Because the sale of agricultural land for, for development is, is is normally very difficult, and it, it keeps the price of that land down, but it must push it up. I, I foresee when people actually begin to realise just how much concrete is going to be spread over the particular over the, over the south of this country in the next few years. I think there is a big problem, as yeah. we were discussing earlier, for the Conservative Party waiting. Yes, I think so. The other thing I was told is that all of these kind of building, new build houses where they have sort of thousands of houses going up, um, apparently the, the law says that they can't, they have to be subjected to various planning um, decisions and planning permissions if that's more than 2,500 being built in any one place. But of course, what they do is they parcel them up into parcels of 500 apiece to various different companies, and then they don't have to worry about the planning permission. No, it's extraordinary how easy it is if you have the right lawyers to evade what appear to be fierce. Well, I was just out on my bike outside Oxford a couple of weeks ago. I noticed a lot of posters in the in the hedges saying "Don't vote for concrete councillors." It's a term that's apparently spreading. It, it, it did the Tories, I think, quite a bit of damage in the area around Oxford at the last local elections. They're, they are associated with concreting over the country and people who move to the country or indeed to, to pleasant suburbs and see their, their peace and seclusion under threat uh, will not likely forgive those who did it to them. It's just a question of where they, where they will turn when the moment comes. Well, exactly right. And speaking of uh, being out on your bike, I suppose you would have seen at the weekend uh, the e-scooter casualty rates in London have soared, apparently, by 570%. 
Well, this is a Mail on Sunday story. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it, well, of course. I mean, but <laughs> the, the, if you look at I, I spent some time last week looking at the House of Commons Transport Committee's so-called report on e-scooters. A lot of the information in it comes straight from the e-scooter manufacturers. I, I didn't get the impression that a really proper impartial examination had taken place here, partly because there is, there is so little information, apart from the PR, the PR claims of the e-scooter manufacturers, this constant claim, for instance, which is swallowed by ministers without a second thought, uh, that if you have lots of e-scooters, people will stop using their cars. Mm. There was no evidence of this at all. All common sense goes against it. A car is a steel box. It has side impact protection. It has airbags. It has seat belts. It has anti-lock braking. A scooter is just is just a piece of metal uh, hurtling along the road at speeds as, as, as far as one can see, up to seventy miles an hour, and certainly up to forty. Mm. And why anybody would swap the safety of a car for that? I mean, again, again, the problem comes down to licensing. You can ride these things with, with a provisional license which you need to pass no test. And, uh, and therefore, they appeal to people who can't be bothered to, 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 to pass tests or maybe have had their licenses taken away. And that will be the problem. And no doubt, that's one of the reasons why the casualties. Yeah. Come up. And I mean, if you live in California, where the weather is pretty much uh, the same all the year round, that's one thing. But I mean, you wouldn't want to be on one today, would you? Well, no, that's, that is another reason why they're unlikely to appeal to car drivers. I, I just that they're, they're not practical transport for people doing things like trying to go to work mm. or uh, or anything of that kind. They are they're frivolous transport for people trying to get home after drinking too much, uh, and uh, and also of course they are ideal transport for people who want to snatch handbags and mug people and then zoom off because they can carry two people. Mm. Uh, and they do in many of the places where these experiments are going underway. You, you can you can you commit a crime and then zoom off, vanish down a side alley without any possibility of anybody mm. ever catching you. It's, it, uh, there couldn't have been a vehicle ever designed uh, more suitable either for a mugger or for a yeah. or, or for a well. I saw something really disturbing actually on Friday night. I was out, um, believe it or not, at a party um, which was held that I went to. Uh, strangely, it was on a boat. I hope you're all socially distanced. Oh, of course, absolutely right. Well, look, well, actually, we're all canoodling, given what Matt Hancock has been up to. But um, I was going home in a taxi, and I, I came upon two guys on these electric scooters wearing, you know, those hockey masks from the horror films. And I just thought to yeah. myself, what on earth are they doing? Because I didn't look very pleasant to me. No, well, that's I, I wouldn't be a bit surprised if your suspicions and mine turned out to be correct on mm. that. I, it just, it, 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 there it is, silent. You slip up behind people from from uh, uh, without any warning at all. Uh, do what you want, and then you're off. And, and if you're wearing a mask, one, nobody knows who you are. One guy does the driving; the other one stands behind. Right, shocking stuff. Great to talk to you, Peter. As ever, we'll talk, catch up again next week when we may have more uh, discussions about the new Secretary of State for Health. Because uh, apparently, uh, Sajid Javid starts work today. That's good, isn't it? Why has he started work today? Matt Hancock resigned on Friday, didn't he? Saturday. Shouldn't he have been ready? Shouldn't he have been working yesterday? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Well, first of all, though, let's talk to Alp Mehmet, chair of Migration Watch, because front page of the Times today, Patel plans for migrants to be held in offshore hub. This is a plan uh, which is in conjunction with Denmark, uh, who apparently want to share some kind of nationality and borders centre in Africa. Alp, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Good afternoon to you, sir. Yes, it's usually morning. Yeah, well, it, it normally is, but we've reached afternoon. Doesn't look much like it as I look out the window here. It's pretty grim. Uh, good luck if you're going to try and see Wimbledon down for the first uh, day that it kicks off. But uh, but there we are. Um, this sounds like a workable plan for the first time, I think, ever since Pretty Patel's been Home Secretary. Uh, but is it? Uh, is it a workable plan? Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's wait and see is all I can say. Uh, this is the, the, not the first time that she's mentioned this. We were talking about it three months ago, frankly, when the, the new bill and the new plans for immigration and asylum were first published. Mm. And it's, it's not even that new, frankly. The idea of offshore processing centres goes back to no lesser person than Tony Blair. 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's not new and, and certainly it's not that revolutionary. I, I see no reason why we can't um, consider applications while people await the outcome of those applications wherever they are 
if it's in Africa or if mm. it's across the channel or it's if it's in Greenland, frankly, it doesn't really matter so long as they're treated well, they're comfortable and they they can wait the outcome of their application. Yes, presumably the point of this help is that these these would be people returning from Britain, having already made it here, because Denmark is talking about having a centre in Rwanda. Um, but that would be presumably not for people currently in Calais who would be somehow taken to Rwanda, but for people who had made their way from Calais to here and would then be taken to Rwanda. Yeah, well, that's what happens now. They get over here, they utter the magic words, I want asylum, mm. and that's it. They're here to stay. Of the 6,000 or so who've come here so far this year, which is roughly two and a half times what happened by this time last year, and we're heading towards well over 20,000 if that continues. But so far, of those who have come illegally across the channel, none, not one has been returned. So clearly it works. And that's why we've got to do something firm and decisive about it. And this would do it. Well, if it the Danes can do it, and if the Australians can do it, why can't we, for goodness sake, we're an independent country now. Yes. Although people say one of the reasons we find it so difficult to do is because of the ease of access to cross the channel now. And it's now become an industrial business with the way the traffickers are making so much money, uh, with the numbers that they can now bring, you know, with the relative safety. I mean, people talk about they're risking their lives coming here. But, I mean, apart from one or two incidents, it's very rare for anyone um, to have a problem on the on the journey, is there? Yeah, well, I, of course it's tragic when anyone, any human being loses their life. And certainly that, that's what I would say to all those who are saying, oh, what we're doing is, is wicked, is cruel. Is it any more cruel than shoving a lot of these people into the arms of traffickers? I would say not. If they are safe, it doesn't matter where where they are. And frankly, it would be in the, the French, Belgian... EU's interest generally mm. if they came in on this if they because where do these people come from so many of them make their way through safe countries through Europe to get up the other side of the channel mm. if the French frankly on this issue had any sense they would say yes let's work together let's toughen and strengthen the borders of the EU and then let's actually treat these people if they want to apply for asylum fine if they are waiting somewhere else fine however when the decisions are made then what i would say is that we also deal with them quickly we either return them back to the countries that they came from or indeed if they qualify if they're granted asylum then we quickly bring them either here or wherever wherever else they're heading for and if this was to be something that was actually set up and people were taken to Africa to be processed, they'd have to ensure, presumably, that once they were processed, if they were refused, that they would be taken somewhere else. But I don't know where that would be. Well, go back to the countries that they, they come from. Yeah, but we can't do moment, that for a lot of people, can we? Because we can't, we well, can't deport we, we them pushed, to... We... Sorry, Mike. No, I was going to say, I, uh, we, we, can't, gonna... we, can't, we can't deport them to certain countries because of the rules that we have in place that say we can't deport people to places where they might uh, be done harm to. Well, uh, some of our courts, I think, um, do bend over backwards, actually, to accept the word of those who are mm. seeking a better life. But that aside, of course, there will be those that we can't do anything about. But we would very likely have arrived at the conclusion that we couldn't send them back early on anyway. Mm. The vast majority of people who are coming here uh, and claiming asylum and don't qualify, frankly, can return to their countries of origin perfectly easily. And we also have the wherewithal to put pressure on the countries who are refusing to document their, their nationals or refusing to accept them. That's what we're not doing at the moment, not really making the effort. Can I, can I also say, though, Mike, mm. that I mean, we've heard all this before, frankly. Um, the government is very good at talking tough, saying, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that and nothing happens. 
admittedly, on occasions, it's not pretty Patel and it's not her ministers. Very often it's it's other ministers who are behind the scenes are saying we can't do this, or indeed Parliament and the charities and all these different organisations who put the pressure on and stop her from doing what she probably wants to do. Mm. This is an indication that she's... Uh, She's up for it. Yes. Well, let's hope so. Alp, thank you very much indeed. Alp Mehmet, Chair of Migration Watch UK there on the news on the front page of the Times today uh, that Priti Patel is planning uh, for migrants to be held in an offshore hub, very possibly off the coast of Africa somewhere, uh, so that if they make it here, uh, we stick them on a plane, fly them back to Africa, uh, and then uh, sort of digest and progress them there. We'll see whether or not that actually works. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.